This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Well, uh, I'm John Hutchison, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the 23rd uh, Asian Conference, Nationalism and Revolution. Um, uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union uh, all those years ago was an historic event uh, because the first Asian Conference had as its theme uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the, and the rise of nationalism. Um, so. We, we are indebted, as it were, to the so break up the Soviet Union for, effect, for the effective founding of ASEAN. Um, uh, so 23 years later, we are coming back to the theme of nationalism and revolution. Um, and uh, it's obviously a timely theme, uh, given what's been happening in the world. But it's a, a matter of astonishment when one was thinking of speakers and also as were canonical works, uh, to use as a, as a point of reference, to find how little had been written on the relationship between nationalism and revolution. Many excellent scholars of revolution and uh, of nationalism, but bringing the two together uh, again is, uh, has been, uh, it's it still a, a labor in progress. So we are particularly privileged uh, to have two outstanding speakers for this morning's uh, session. Um, I should just say before introducing uh, our, our, our first speaker uh, that we should uh, thank Faroz Anwala and his team for bringing the conference to this point. Uh, and it uh, looks an unusually rich and uh, an interesting conference. Um, the format will be uh, the, we'll have two 30 minute lectures, the talks. They'll be open the floor to questions. Uh, and we have to stop about five minutes before our session so that we can have the Asian AGM, which is really just uh, a set of points of information for you. Constitutionally, we're required uh, to have the AGM at the time of the conference. So uh, please bear with us. It won't keep you from your coffee for very, very long. Um, so that, that will take about uh, no more than five, five to ten minutes. Anyway, our first speaker is Karma Nabulsi, University Lecturer in International Relations and Fellow in Politics at St. Edmunds uh, College, Oxford. Um, I first came uh, across her work a few years ago uh, when reading her book, Traditions of War, uh, which looked at, amongst many other things, about the impact of, of republicanism uh, on the thinking about war. Uh, how it interacted with imperial traditions of martial war and the more Grotian conceptions that were developing within the nation-state system. An unusually rich um, interdisciplinary work bringing together social history, intellectual history, uh, thinking about war uh, and, and, uh, and, uh, and law. Uh, so it's a particular pleasure to, uh, to, to, to hear her speak today. Uh, she's written uh, a number of important uh, works, including uh, a book called The Palestinian uh, Register. Um, I've got that right, have I? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, she's directing two major uh, funded projects, the British Academy, Republicanism Without Republics, 
and uh, second, teaching the history of the Palestinian Revolution, uh, which is a collaborative venture between Oxford and uh, the uh, Arab world. So, uh, without ado, uh, let us hear what um, Dr. Nabosi has to tell us. Thank you. Thank you, John. Sorry, uh, I didn't give you your title of your talk. Oh, well, it's the treasure of revolutions. Uh, tradition of thought and practice, and it's really lovely. Thank you so much for inviting me uh, to start this off so early in the morning. I have my coffee here, and uh, I'm just going to talk maybe 25-30 minutes, uh, and I'm going to do it in three parts. One is uh, about whether there is such a thing as a tradition of revolutions, yeah? and then what does it consist of, and finally, how do you trace such a tradition? And uh, I won't go into the exhaustive, methodological, interdisciplinary aspects of that, but keep it on a really friendly and light note that it's possible to do. Uh, so, on the one hand, we have the study of revolutions and of nationalism, which is the subject of this amazing conference. And on the other, we have revolutionaries and the revolutions that they created, and indeed that they were, that, that they were created by. It is about these latter two about which I wish to speak this morning and the tradition of thought and practice they can be traced to. A tradition and an approach that is quite distinct from these current fields, but an approach that could provide some theoretical sustenance to it. At this tradition's heart and what attaches it through time and place lies a single principle, popular sovereignty. Now, Hannah Arendt, for one, doesn't think that there can be such a tradition because it is a treasure, a public good, which is irrevocably lost between generations. In her essay, The Gap Between the Past and the Future, she begins her own quest for the lost treasure of revolutions with the mysteries of its definition, and I quote, the history of revolutions could be told in parable form as the tale of an age-old treasure which, under the most varied circumstances, appears abruptly, unexpectedly, and disappears again, under different mysterious conditions, as though it were a Fata Morgana. There exist, indeed, many good reasons to believe that the treasure was never a reality, but a mirage, that we deal here not with anything substantial, but with an apparition. And the best of these reasons is that the treasure thus far has remained nameless. Does something exist, not in outer space, but in the world and affairs of men on earth, which has not even a name? Unicorns and fairy queens seem to possess more reality than the lost treasure of revolutions." Unquote. Drawing on the words of the poet René Char, tracing his own discovery of it during his days fighting for it in the French resistance, Arendt defines this public treasure in the language of those 18th century American revolutionaries who were willing to die for it, the public happiness, or for the French revolutionaries, public freedom, for Rousseau, popular sovereignty. But Hannah Arendt, in her typical gloomy fashion, believes that this precious treasure can hardly be named, much less collectively held, for she claims that no past tradition exists in which this public freedom is embedded one that can guard and preserve this revolutionary force from generation to generation. 
So Arendt claims that this nameless treasure is lost between generations because there is nothing that can be passed on, nothing inherited. And I quote her again. The testament, telling the heir what will rightfully be his, wills past possessions for a future. Without testament, or to resolve the metaphor, without tradition, which selects and names, which hands down and preserves, which indicates where the treasures are, and what their worth is. There seems to be no willed continuity in time, and hence, humanly speaking, neither past nor future. Thus, the treasure is lost, not because of historical circumstances and the adversity of reality, but because no tradition has foreseen its appearance or its reality, because no testament has willed it for the future. She is wrong, of course. A tradition of revolutions exists and can be traced very precisely in any country, in any historical period, from where it constantly emerges in its popular form. For what is universal about this collective treasure is that it is owned by no particular region in the world, nor did any single intellectual tradition create it. The revolutionary tradition of popular sovereignty exists. It is simply that pessimistic liberals don't wish to claim it because at its heart, it demonstrates that democracy and revolutionary acts are completely intertwined, are one. So where do we go to trace this tradition of revolutions? If we look at the people who make revolutions, at their practices, their ideas, their organizations, their years of preparation and collective work, we find that imbued in everything they write, everything they do, is passion, spirit, ideology, principles, but of, above all, an awareness of the virtues and an unwavering commitment to them. But the study of revolutions to be scholarly, scholarly therefore, must be attached in some serious way to the reality of the experience of revolutions and revolutionaries. The language that they used, the ideas that drove them what they were actually fighting for, who they were fighting against, and why, and above all, what values they held so that they chose such risks and dangers. These are the first questions. Without an analysis or basic understanding of the principles, the injustices that they could not reconcile themselves to, the desires to change a wretched present for the happiness of all, without reading their words, Following their actions, we end up in the study of anything but revolutions. So what ties these revolutionaries together in a tradition? Tactics, strategies, ideologies. But above all, what connects them is that simple revolutionary principle of popular sovereignty. That all are equal, free, and self-governing. That sovereignty rests with the people, not the king, and not the nation even but inside each person. That, this single principle was what the French Republican Godefroy Cavagnac rightly named la force révolutionnaire. Popular sovereignty as the revolutionary principle is not based on the nation alone, but based on a political understanding, the framework of the social contract where all are equal and free. Accordingly, popular sovereignty and revolutions 
are most often about republicanism and republicans. In other words, most revolutionaries are republicans, not nationalists. And although many are devoted to the nation, it is certainly not what they are fighting for. Popular sovereignty as a core value of Rousseauist republican ideology remains central to the revolutionary framework of both thought and action, and one that can be traced across the world. For example, between the 18th and 20th centuries, successive generations of revolutionaries, when faced with the predicament of imperial domination, military occupation and invasion, constructed a tradition drawn from ancient and classical republican notions, and above all, from the French, Polish, Corsican, American, Haitian, and Latin American revolutionary experiences, and from the great decolonizing movements, and drawn from the texts of those revolutionaries. This dis tradition has a distinguished lineage in the modern era. In the 19th century, in inspired revolutions across Europe and both Americas. In the 20th, it can be traced through the myriad rich history of the anti-colonial struggles for liberation across the world, from Africa to Asia, Algeria to Palestine. Its overriding features was the creation of republics through revolutions. I will now suggest a few reasons as to why the historiography has been nearly silent about its existence and sketch out some of the conceptual and historical aspects of this revolutionary tradition and tie it to more recent ones. So, from a historiographical point of view, this tradition of revolutionary struggle is something of a lost tribe. The men and women who make it up are all almost entirely unknown. This is primarily because most chose to remain anonymous. Of course, in the first place, they were trying to remain hidden from the empire's armies, police spies. And if you're trying to retrieve their story, it's a very laborious work in the archives. Yeah? You have to read police reports on them, and they're trying to remain hidden. You have to count on all kinds of different types of documents. But there's more to it than that. These revolutionaries were Republicans and committed to the idea that sovereignty was popular and collective, not grounded in a single individual. So part of the ideology was a belief in leading from within and not setting themselves ahead of others. The few that are well known and whom biographies are written, the Mazzinis, for example, were not the main actors who dreamed and planned and built these revolutions. The main protagonist's work in revolutions is done anonymously, purposefully. The work of revolutions is to create free republics is a pattern of practice as much as it is a tradition of thought, and anonymity is the essence of republican practice. Now another reason for this neglect is that they are excluded from the traditional historical narratives, almost all of which are centered around the nation state. And I was giving an example of Mazzini as one who would be allied with the history of the nation state. Yeah. The activities of these revolutionaries were transnational and not bounded by national frameworks, which is how most studies on the creation of modern democracies, state system, and the nation state are being written. For example, if you look at the 19th century revolutionary project in Europe, or the anti-colonial movement in the 21st century, you will find the majority of texts, pamphlets, organizational principles, charters, and oaths place the fight for the establishment of free republics 
as an international project, not a national one. Now, Marxist historiography also maintains a hegemonic interpretation and a monolithic representation of the left, miscategorizing and misrepresenting them with some contempt as romantics or utopians. And there is a prominent literature on that today. Indeed, both Marx and Engels personally attempted to destroy the reputations of the Republican contemporaries in this manner. They were their natural rivals on the left, and they were much more popular with all tiers of society, especially the working classes. Finally, another reason, and not a small one, is that their writings are scattered, much of it technical and strategic, or published in small popular pamphlets and journals that have long disappeared. The precariousness of their lives, their desperate situations, and for many, even the manner in which they died, has meant that much of their work has been lost. Indeed, the best historical and conceptual work being done today in South Africa, in Palestine, and elsewhere on revolutionaries and revolutionary movements is retrieved today via the method of oral history of cadres. These revolutionaries are also something of a lost tribe because of their philosophical and conceptual foundations, as we saw with Hannah Arendt, but it's pervasive, are still presented as mysterious. Indeed, one of the principal philosophers of this framework, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, has been customarily aligned with the Romantic tradition. This interpretation typically places Rousseau alongside Vico as part of an intellectual movement which developed in Germany in the writings of Herder, Fichte, and ultimately Hegel. This is a substantial misalignment, for which there are at least two reasons. The first is a usual emphasis on the rationality of the Enlightenment, with the Romantics forming its heterodoxy. Hence, the tendency has been either to interpret, interpret a violence-based morality as a dangerous type of radicalism, which could only find its feet in absolutist or totalitarian models of thought, or to conflate heroic and epic narratives and practices with mysticism, nationalism, and quasi-religious or proto-Marxist doctrines. All these interpretations deny the lived experience of revolutionaries who are without doubt radical, but in an articulate, organized, and purposive way for realizable ends in their developed theories of overturning injustice, in their sophisticated collective organizations and networks that were created to fight for collective freedom for all. Above all, this tradition was constructed in response to particular political predicaments, the experiences of oppression, subjugation, and political domination. Second, some have argued that the kind of moral action upon which these revolutionaries rested had fragmented by the end of the 18th century. As Alistair McIntyre writes in After Virtue, and I quote, Republicanism in the 19th century is the project of restoring a community of virtue, but it envisions the project as an idiom inherited from Roman rather than Greek sources and transmitted through the Italian republics. It articulates one aspect of the Republican tradition, but only one. Yet contrary to his belief that this rest restoration of the epic Republican tradition was no longer possible, a 
powerful and very vibrant strand of republicanism continued to flourish in Europe in the 19th and 20th centuries and elsewhere in the world. It had strong conceptual roots, not only in the model of Rome, but also Athens and Sparta. Indeed, it was a tradition that had strong resonances with McIntyre's own vision of the ancient ethical practices of a society based on the virtues. Now, a number of essential features in this tradition are worth highlighting. Central to its identity were a number of myths about man, society, war, liberty, equality, patriotism, and yes, nationalism. For example, the myths of liberty, equality, and fraternity that arose out of the French Revolution of 1789 were used by Republicans throughout Europe during the Polish insurrections and the Spring of Nations in 1848. More specifically, particular notions of slavery and in the construction of the conception of liberty had a profound influence on the way in which this tradition cohered. It was also a tradition in the literal sense in that its aims and objectives were defined within generations as well as transmitted across them. In this sense, the, the tradition was embedded in patterns of thought and moral codes which directly inspired the participants. Ideologies do not merely develop as systems of abstract ideas, but are also embedded in concrete social practices. And the work to create revolutions and the revolutions themselves provide a furnace of ideas emerging from these practices. One example, I'll just give one, of how these practices and theories combine to embody this tradition can be seen in the work of Tadeusz Kociuszko. This Polish revolutionary was directly inspired by the writings of Mirabeau and Condorcet on political action and the perfectibility of man, Rousseau's image of the Republican citizen and Republican war, and the predicament of Poland at the second half of, this, of the 18th century. He fought for the Republican cause in the American Revolution with Jefferson and Washington, finally returning home to lead the first epic Polish uprising, its revolution, which was named after him in 1794. He also published what was to become the seminal insurrectionary text of the 19th century, Can the Poles Fight Their Way to Freedom? Subsequent generations of revolutionaries were inspired by it and by him. Mazzini, Carlo Bianco, in particular, were influenced by his life and his work, were publishing much of Kociuszko's writings under their own names, whilst adapting it to the Italian predicament. Their work, in turn, became pivotal sources for subsequent Polish and Hungarians, generations of revolutionaries right across Europe and further afield, who carried the notion of revolution as a good life into their own plans. And it is worth mentioning here, something that was discovered about a year ago when I was reading about the Arab national movement of the 1950s, whose members went on to become the founders of the Palestinian national movement in the 1960s, avidly read the writings of Mazzini and other 19th century revolutions, leading us back to Kuchyska. So to conclude, how does this silent tradition make itself visible to the scholar? How can it be traced in practice? Let us look at a current example of popular sovereignty in action. Now, Hannah Arendt quoted 18th century revolutionaries, defining their aims as the public happiness, that is, collective freedom. In everyday terms, this public freedom can best be imagined in the public square of any of our cities. 
In the square, the presence of popular sovereignty is much more visible and recognizable to the naked eye. Without a roof, open to the heavens, the working of the body politic can easily be appreciated for the stuff it is made of. How does the public square get recreated and reclaimed by citizens? And just as important, how is its freedoms held once it is recaptured? Cairo's Midana Tahrir Liberation Square was filled day after day with the multitude, the masses, the collective spirit of the nation. This made it, of course, a revolutionary gesture, as popular sovereignty could clearly be seen to lie with them, and not with the army, or the police, or the dictator, all whom had a firm grip on the recognized instruments of state. Yet this sovereign citizenry was not comprised of a spontaneous outpouring of massed multitude of individuals. For well over a decade before the public square became filled with citizens. The square itself was fought for inch by inch, year after year, increasingly held and finally won by a vast assortment of politically organized associations of different sizes and histories. And it is each of these that must be recognized and understood for the essential, decisive role they played in the revolution. In Egypt, one can trace in intricate detail the decade, the chain of events. First, the mass protests over Palestine at the outbreak of the Second Intifada, and the fierce crackdown on the protesters with the critical lessons that it provided to them. The crackdown, that is. The workers' strike at the textile mills from 2005, such as Mahalla al Kubra, which re reached a crest around 2007. The growing coalition of socialist, nationalist, liberal, communist, and Islamic party activists, alongside the workers organized outside the state run unions, together with their imprisonments and banning the Kafaya movement, campaigners, and so on, step by difficult step. Public happiness is always made up of those exhausting, and in some places dangerous, years of engagement. The mass of ordinary citizens, always ensuring the popular nature of sovereignty, are always the last to arrive in the public square, and the first to leave it. Yet it's open and precious space which has been fought for by that myriad of freedom-loving associations whose very aims are to preserve it, is for all. So, it is in this manner that one can measure the shape of popular sovereignty and the spirit in any particular polity. And first of all, one will immediately find that society is not flat, nor undifferentiated, nor divided into classes. It is not made up of multitudes or masses or individuals or even a collection of them. It is not a long shopping list of NGO organizations, each carrying equal weight, the school, the mosque, the football club, the union, the youth, the newspaper, the bank. Some of these are private, some are public, some have one member, some have a hundred, some a hundred thousand. So it is always these small organizations founded on universal values, dedicated to progressive or rather revolutionary political change, and always working in a coalition with others that create and hold what Hannah Arendt called this precious treasure for all. But it is in this way that revolutions take their final shape, 
and it defines the ones that have a chance of succeeding. For it is those citizens still remaining in the public square, committed since a very long time to democracy and freedom, collective freedom, and the very principle of popular sovereignty, along with the new citizens forged by the revolution's first days, who must fight the hard battle to institutionalize these freedoms in the long month ahead. Thank you.